Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so thrilled to be sitting here with one of my favorite people to listen to on podcasts, Linda Holmes. She is the pop culture correspondent for National Public Radio and the host of the podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour. Evie Drake Starts Over is her first novel. Thanks for coming in, Linda. Thanks, Maris. It's so exciting that you're here. It's exciting to me, too. We were going to do this once before, and the scheduling got weird, and I'm so happy that we were able to make it make it work. Me, too. So I remember listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour years ago. Oh, yeah? To your resolution episode. Yes. My New Year's resolution in 2017 was that I was going to finish this, at least finish this manuscript and then see what happened. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, I definitely won the uh, I won the resolutions episode that year because every year we go back and we talk about what our resolutions were for the previous year and how we did. So when we came in the following January, I definitely won because <laughs> by then I had finished it and sold the book, and so yeah, it was good. And, and now you're a New York Times bestseller. It appears so, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of wild, yeah. Do you want to give our listeners just a little brief intro? Sense sense of the book? Yeah. Yeah, so Evie Drake starts over as about a a woman that is Evie, and she she lives in Maine and is in her kind of mid-30s probably. Her husband, she married her high school boyfriend. They've been together her whole uh, adult life, and she is not happy in that marriage, but just as she's about to leave – uh, and she hasn't really confided in anybody, so she's just mm-hmm. kind of she's just kind of gonna leave first and answer questions later. And just as she's about to to leave, he dies in an accident, and so she is kind of stuck in this odd situation where nobody really knows what was going on. Mm-hmm. She rents out a about a year after her husband died. She rents out a room in the back of her house to a friend of a friend who is a. Major League Baseball player who kind of washed out of baseball, pitcher who came down with the yips. If you're familiar with the yips, it's just kind of the sudden inexplicable loss of your basic skills. So he's kind of looking for a place to recover and, again, friend of a friend. And so so she rents out her the, the kind of in-law suite in the back of her house. And, and they kind of become friends first and then who knows? Maybe more. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who can say? How did you get this done so quickly? You know, it was underway. I mean, little chips. It's funny because, like, on the one hand, I finished it. On the one hand, I kind of started working on it seriously in the late part of 2016, and it was done right. by March of 2017, which is, you know, feels fast. But on the other hand, I had been kind of picking away at it for sure. many years. So in that sense, it feels slow. So it really just depends on kind of how you think about it. But, I mean, I think I I, I saved up – I would save up vacation and go away for a week mm. at a time and try to get some writing done. Did a lot of writing mornings and, and late at night and on weekends and kind of gave over my whole – I think my whole allotment of free time – to it and uh, and it managed to get done. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. One of the things that I keep coming back to now that I've sat with your novel for for quite a while is that it seems as though Evie and you and I <laughs> all love so many different kinds of culture. Yeah, and that is so fulfilling and wonderful ninety nine percent of the time. Mm-hmm. But then there's that other 1% where you get to get lost in it and not really 
talk to other people if you don't feel like it or to right. interact with other people. Yeah. And do you do you see Evie that way? She's a very she is in a lot of ways a very interior person. I think the fact that she was in this relationship that was very kind of negative and unhappy for her that she didn't really feel like she could talk about because her husband is well-liked in the place where she lives and he's a doctor and he's admired. And so I think it isolates her more and more and more that she kind of doesn't feel like she can be straight with people. So I, I think in a way she becomes a more sort of introverted person. And I think being able to talk about things that she likes or yeah. – watch TV with somebody or whatever, become, you know, they become points of connection. And I, I think they are for, I think they always have been for me. And and I think, yes, yeah, so I, I think she and I probably have, have that in common. You know, I didn't really realize that people would think that kind of movies and TV and podcasts and stuff played a big role in this novel until it came out. And, and people started to say like, oh, you know, there's a lot of mentions of kind of like what TV she likes. And I guess that's just, you know, inherent to... It's an occupational hazard, I guess. Right, right. But it also, I mean, it's an, it's a really interesting way to develop a character. Yeah, and I think, to me, it feels honest that if you, particularly if you were sharing, sort of semi-sharing living space with somebody, mm-hmm. one of the questions that I had was kind of, how do you begin, how does the process begin of kind of going across that that breach of, you know, the landlord space versus the tenant space? Right. How, how does... How does that line begin to blur? And for me, the idea that he would be the one who had the big TV and the comfortable chairs in this apartment <laughs> that that he's renting, that he would have that space and she would just come over and they would have a TV show that they watched together. That seemed to me like a very um, – and maybe it's just my friends and life, but that seemed like a very obvious and natural way that that those those kind of more official – delineations of space would begin to to fall away a little. Yeah. And, and and I mean, so many people talk about not wanting to reference specific technologies or specific parts of culture yeah. in their books. But but that's what we're kind of just engrossed in most yeah. of the time. And there was a little bit of a difference between um I did try not to talk about current like current television in current terms because that has a way of dating the book, right? You you know instantly where you are. So if they're talking about something as like a nostalgia piece like Law & Order, which has been yes. on forever, and then you can talk about that, that's fine. But there was, for example, a, yes. a use of Scandal, them kind of watching Scandal together that my editor sort of pointed out, and it's true, why, why don't you maybe use a, a fictional show because when Scandal's not on anymore, it will instantly give people that feeling of, oh, this happened a while ago. So I made up the show instead. It's a very similar show. It's yes. politics and sex and power and things Halls like that. Halls of Power. It's called Halls of Power. And it was <laughs> um, my friend Eric Adams who did my – who moderated my event near Chicago with me recently was the one who pointed out that obviously the family should be the Halls. Um, oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. The family should be, you know, that the it was a matriarch and and <laughs> Mrs. Hall, who was a senator and then became president. Yes, and then she has her her husband, uh, Clayton Hall, <laughs> and we we sort of began to write at that event the entire kind of Bible of of halls of power, and which revolves yes around the halls. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, who wouldn't be fascinated by the halls? Right. It was it was funny how quickly it began to come together. There was a you know obviously someone whose sexuality was a secret and sure you know, closely guarded, and but everyone loved him, and you know we had a whole layout of the family, the daughter <laughs> who's in PR and stuff like that. We began to kind of to lay it out. And on Twitter, I've seen that you've also indulged some of your readers in in trying to imagine a layout for. The adaptation of Evie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that I I don't think I realized until I was writing it that because my background is partly in close watching of a lot of movies and television that I was in some cases in writing the novel kind of describing a movie scene in great detail. So sometimes you're kind of describing – um, it's as if when you write a screenplay, people always say, you know, you don't want to necessarily dictate every little move that people are making. Right. You want them to have some room for interpretation. And I think what I was doing was sort of imagining it down to the last detail, um, <laughs> you know, that you don't have to actually give every physical motion that the person is making through a room. So that's actually one of the things that <laughs> – so I also had kind of seen some – movie kind of, you know, there's a movie in my head, I think maybe always. But yeah, people then start to talk. It's a really funny and interesting aspect of casting. I People always are interested in, you know, who do you see? And, right. and it wasn't something that I had thought about a whole lot. And and what has actually turned out to be interesting about it is that I, I've wound up being glad that there's not a lot of super close observation in the novel of precisely what they look like. Sure. So people have gone in a lot of really different, different directions. <laughs> yeah. And they've gone, you know, in different directions in terms of, um, you know, obviously baseball players are white and black and Latino and many other things. And so um, some people have cast black actors as as Dean, the baseball player, um, which works is fine because, um, you know, the book doesn't really say. I so. saw you mentioning Jesse Williams. Somebody Smoon. else mentioned Jesse Williams. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'll buy that. <laughs> um, but, it's, it's, and the, but the same is true of the fact that the book doesn't really go into a lot of – because it doesn't go into a lot of very tight detail, some mm-hmm. people have kind of thought older. Some people have thought a little younger. Um, I think there's a I think there's always a wide range that can work in something like yeah. this. So it's been really gratifying to see people kind of grapple with that in their own minds. It's so fun to change the topic a little bit. What do you say to a few of the readers and or publications who've praised your book mm-hmm. by saying it's a romance, but it's smart? Yeah, that's. The thing is, you never want to. I'm grateful for people who like the book. I'm grateful for people, grateful for people who recognize that it's a romance, and recognize that they think it's intelligent, right? Yeah. But I also, on behalf of the many romance writers and readers that I know and and am friends with, and am yes, um, I also really want to make sure that I don't accidentally sign on to that idea because, in fact, a lot of romance is really beautifully written. And yeah. and I think Romance Writers of America, their their definition of a romance is sort of has a central love story and has an ending that, although it might not be entirely happy, is, is um, at least optimistic or hopeful. So definitionally, it is a romance, but definitionally, so are many other things, right? So, so are books that I think are classics and yes. and the idea that romance is sort of um, widely disposable and forgettable is is really based on a, a very narrow view of it. Based on, I'm not saying there's not you know, romance among other things is a money making thing. Sure, of course, um, yes, and therefore well. there is disposable. 
stuff written to make money quickly and easily. That's true in science fiction. It's true in fantasy. It's true in many, many other mystery, many other genres. Certainly, you're sort of um, you're sort of like a tough, uh, withdrawn man who carries a gun and yes. fights. I don't know, uh, n- nameless bad inter- guys, nameless, nameless international bad guys. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of trashy unnecessary and unthoughtful stuff in that genre as well. For some reason, mm, um, you <laughs> what know, could it be? Ro- romance winds up being singled out. But in fact, much of romance is incredibly rich and interesting. And if you look at it from a publishing perspective, yes. romance is so important to romance readers were the were very early uh, adopters of ebooks. So really right. were important to helping that technology thrive. They are um, very big supporters of bookstores and book events Mm -hmm. and um, authors and publishers and are a huge part of the infrastructure, the kind of reader infrastructure of of publishing and libraries and all that stuff. So I, I always find that really regrettable and mostly just feel bad for people who have not read enough romance. Yes. It's kind of like, you know, if you I have a friend who always says I'm not really a Broadway person. But but I loved Hamilton and I loved <laughs> Be More Chill. Man. Yep. And I loved um I loved what the Constitution means to me. And I lo- and we'll start doing this list. And eventually you get to the point where you're like, no, that's what it is. You and actually so, love it. And so when people start to say, I don't like romance, but I like this book, it's like, but this is part of what romance is. Like th- you would find many other Similarly themed and and I think Enjoyable. you know similarly written and and you know whatever you enjoy about the writing of this book you would find in a lot of romance. It's just that many people don't read it and kind of adopt that same. You know, it's very much the I don't have a t- I don't own a TV. Yes, absolutely. I don't own a TV. I haven't watched TV in twenty five years because nothing that's on is good. <laughs> and I was like. I gave up after Twin Peaks. Well, exactly. And it's always sort of like, well, how do you know? You're you're bragging about not watching it. So how do you know whether anything's good? You know? And it's sort of if you don't read romance because you think it's bad, then how do you know it's bad? Like what are you going off of? You know? Yeah. So yeah, I I I am never not happy that somebody enjoyed it and recognizes it as a romance. But I always want to be kind of respectful of romance writers by not saying like, oh, thanks so much. Like (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you want to kind of understand, you want to continue to kind of be respectful of of people who haven't, unfortunately, always gotten that kind of praise from from those kind of outlets. And and not only have you written a romance, but you've written a romantic comedy. To some degree, yeah. I mean, I think it has – one of the really interesting things is that there have been people who've responded to it by saying, I loved it because it's so light and fun and kind of like perfect beach read. And then there have been people who have said, you know, I liked it because it was kind of more thoughtful and, and you know, more emotional than I thought it was mm-hmm. going to be. But, yeah, I mean, there are, there are um, sequences in it that are – Almost entirely inspired by my my great and deep love of romantic comedy, and just I remember reading around the time that Before Sunrise um, came out. I think it was that Linklater had said, "If you can't do a movie that's just a, a just two people talking, then you don't know how to do a movie." Yeah, and I think that's always kind of my. That's my fondness as well. Uh-huh. So I, I like those those scenes, whether it's them watching TV together or talking, 
you're telling stories or, you know, going on a road trip or whatever. Those are all those are all pieces of that. Yeah. And the, and the snappy dialogue. Yeah, I hope so, because that's something that I really love and, and am influenced by always. So, And of course, going back to Dean. Yeah, the baseball player. The baseball player. First of all, he's a Yankee. He is a Yankee. He was a Yankee. He was a Yankee. He was a Yankee. He was a Yankee, yeah. I mean, I, I think part of that was my sense that the the most difficult and highest profile place to have that happen to you would probably be if you played for the Yankees. Yes. Um, and and in fact, I later read in one of the baseball books that I read, I read um, one of the guys saying, and forgive me, I don't remember exactly who it was, but one of the writers or players or somebody said, if you're going to completely collapse, try not to be a Yankee when it happens. <laughs> and it's just because, you know, it's just because the, the, the pressure is so intense and the expectations are so high and the press attention is so high and the fan base is so intense and it's a it's a very big spotlight in which to to fall apart which is what ultimately happened to him you could argue red sox might be just as bad but it's it's it would depend on the the situation it would depend i mean i i speak as someone whose husband wears a red sox cap around new york city and i'm a little bit frightened yeah well well, exactly and there's a (laughs) There's a moment in the book where they're they're going on a road trip kind of in the direction of Boston. Yeah. And, and Dean comes out in a, a Giants jersey, a New York Giants <laughs> football jersey. And um, and she kind of says, like, are you no. trying to get in a bar fight, you know, <laughs> while we're down there? So, yeah, I, I understand that. But but the yips is such a good metaphor for being unable to deal with life or having having tough things happen yeah. to you. Well, and what I think appealed to me about it dramatically is that it, it's also really very much unexplained. I think a yeah. lot of people have, in the age of how helpful therapy is to a lot of people, including mm-hmm. me and Evie mm-hmm. in the book, in the age of kind of how helpful therapy is, people often have great faith in the importance of figuring out causes. Like, why is right. this happening? And to understand a problem is to be able to solve it. And I think one of the things about the yips is that even after, you know, many years and there is a ton of research that goes into this phenomenon, they still don't really know exactly why it happens. And And, and Dean tried. And he tried a little bit of everything (laughs) because that's how it is when something happens to you in the public eye. Everybody wants to tell you, like, I know the thing. I know the solution. But even doctors and researchers don't even fully agree yet on whether it's entirely a psychological you know, um, affliction. There are people who think that it has connections to trauma and things like that. There are also people who think it's an actual physical, you know, there's a, a documentary where a doctor refers to it as an injury. It's a, it just depends on, it just depends on, they're not sure. And so I think for him, one of the things that he's dealing with is this has sort of uprooted my life in a very abrupt way. And nobody can really tell me what happened or why this happened. Or what I can do to fix it other than trying a bunch of stuff and seeing if it works. Yeah, I, I imagine like everybody around him is so invested in, mm-hmm. in in getting him fixed and has so many strong feelings about mm-hmm. fixing him. I yeah. just used air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, he he I think when you see him at the beginning of the book, I think he's very much at a point where he feels like he's tried everything, it hasn't worked, and now he feels an obligation to sort of say, this is all fine. I'm over it. 
no, because there's nothing left to do. And I think he has right. that he has that attitude of if there's nothing left that I can do about it, then it's fine. And then I'm I'm over it, you know? Which is sort of not how humans work. Really. <laughs> right, right. And and then of course baseball player is such a big part of his identity. And going back to this, but um you use culture in a way to to round him out, to to make mm-hmm. us to reassure us that he is more than just um, a pitch. Yeah, and the funny thing is he some of his cultural interests were based on um, real athletes, not necessarily real baseball players, but, you know, he's very interested in kind of geek, kind of ner- what you would call geek nerd stuff. He yeah. kind of went to Comic-Con and stuff like that. <laughs> and some of that comes from comes from Chris Cluey, who was a football player, as a kicker for the Vikings, and and was sort of notorious for having um, more, in his case, more gaming, but kind of like nerd interests and <laughs> and a, a kind of a passion for certain elements of pop culture. And I think that's part of what inspired this idea that Dean would be distinguished kind of particularly when people still liked and admired him would yes. be would be that the part of that affection would come from understanding that, oh, he loves Batman. He's a Batman guy and right. all that stuff. He likes Star Wars. He, he likes Star it. Wars. He likes <laughs> Batman. You know, he's fun. He likes vintage pinball machines. He does like vintage pinball machines. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fun. Aside from Dean and Evie, I think one of the most powerful relationships in the book is, is between Evie and her best friend, who's who's a man. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of my – it sounds like such a funny thing to say, but like, many of my best friends are men. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I've always really felt like the um, the whole kind of can men and women be friends – question is pretty dumb at this mm-hmm, stage of mm-hmm. all of our lives. I think maybe as a holdover from when men and women didn't work together as much as they do now and women right. were kind of more uh, separated from kind of a, a man's day-to-day life unless they were a partner or or something like that. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to write about a super close platonic friendship between, in this case, a straight man and a straight woman. I, I just It's just not something that I feel like I see as much of as I would like yeah. to. And so it gave me something, you know, you're always looking for what you haven't, what you haven't already seen. And so that to me was something that I hadn't already seen. In terms of backstory, we've talked a little bit about, you, you've done uh, a lot of work that might be missing from the book. Oh, might yeah. be that might be um, like we we want a DVD with with the sure, director's cut. Sure, what what would we find on that? Um, you know, there's some stuff that's just um, research that I that I did. The section that explains kind of the history of the Yips was originally much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's I think the the length that it's at now is probably the right length. But there was a <laughs> lot of kind of um, individual stories from people who had the Yips and and. More of a sense of kind of what their stats look like and and how how rapid those drops are. So for one thing, there was a lot more of that. For another thing, there's a profile of um, <laughs> yeah. there's a profile of Dean that is described in the book that happened earlier before the beginning of the book. Right. But there's a profile of him that is discussed in a scene when actually his parents are are present, having come for Thanksgiving. And they're talking about this profile of him that he in some ways didn't like. Um, 
And that profile sort of exists. I wrote it, a version of it. it it's not probably magazine profile length, but it is long. And the um, tone, of, I mean, you get the tone exactly right. And of course, it starts out with... It starts out with um, what he's eating because <laughs> I felt... And the funny thing is I didn't really think of it in terms of I'm going to employ a... a um, a cliche at the beginning of this faux <laughs> magazine article that I was writing. But when I wrote it, it started off with like, oh, we're sitting at this bar uh, in Gowanus and he's like eating chicken fingers. And when I showed it to one of my friends, my friend said, oh, the thing that's so funny about this is this is such a good kind of mimicry of <laughs> so many profiles that start off with like, oh, she's eating the fish. Like, you know, <laughs> but yeah, that profile, although it's not reproduced in the book, does exist off on the the farther reaches of my my files. But when you have a really smart editor, very often they'll say like this is going to be a little bit much in terms of interrupting <laughs> the story. And there's a there are a couple other things like that, things that where there was a little more kind of the of reproduction of the journalism about him. You also in terms of the darker part of the book. Yeah. You have Evie in this position where she's a widow, mm -hmm. which means she, and she says this over and over, she can never be single again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, definitionally, you know, if you're a widow for the most part, you know, she had this idea in her mind that she was going to be divorced and that she would be essentially no longer defi defined by that relationship to this person. But when she discovers that, oh, like by definition, now I'm a widow. So now I'm still defined by this this marriage, you know, in this way that makes her feel like it's a it's an image of her that's sad and that's sad because of the loss of her husband, which is not how she wanted to see herself. So I think, yeah, that that idea of kind of what do you define yourself in relation to mm -hmm. is always um, a, a difficult one. And, and I think for her, not being able to end that relationship sort of on her own terms has a whole host of, you know, just consequences that I think it takes her a while to untangle. Another thing I find fascinating about Evie is is her day job. Yeah. This is the kind of thing where if you work in – I think if you work in journalism or or um, publishing or something like that, it's more likely to be a job that m makes sense to you. Yes. But she is a – she's a transcriber. So she is a person who uh, works at home essentially with a lot of um, tape, interview tape typically from uh, either journalists or uh, researchers um, or sometimes companies, and she creates transcription. And I think there are a lot of people who assume that all transcription is now automated. And although yeah. some transcription is automated, there are still live people whose job this is and their accuracy and their ability to discern what's actually happening in the conversation is very right. important to the people who hire them. And they do get reputations for being very, very good because, for example, if you're doing transcription about, in the case of this book, about, let's say, you know, lobstermen in Maine, mm -hmm. people who are being interviewed are going to use terms that sure. if you don't have a knowledgeable transcriber, you're going to wind up with unintelligible in your transcript a lot, you know? Because the person doesn't know what's happening or what's going on in the tape, and then you have to go back and listen to it again. And so she's a very good um, – sh she's very good at transcription, and that's what she does as her job. Which which is also a key to her emotional intelligence or her ability yeah. to listen. And her curiosity. I yes. mean, I think she's someone who it has always been really curious about other people's stories, 
And she's empathetic enough, I think, to um, oh yeah, to invest in other people's stories. And I think if you if you are a particular kind of person, the idea of listening to a lot of raw tape of interviews, particularly if it's not your interview, so you don't have to yes. listen to yourself, ask yes. questions. Yes. The idea of listening to a lot of raw tape of interviews is is a fun, fun is a fun notion, particularly if you're doing it for interesting people who are researching or reporting a wide variety of topics about which you can learn a lot. And that's another thing that originally, I think, in earlier drafts of the book, there was a little more playing around with kind of weird stuff that she knew <laughs> because she had listened to all the research for a book about it. Right. Um, so, so yeah. And that's another thing where you just have to kind of figure out how much of it needs to be in the book and how much of it is just you playing around. Director's cut one day. Let's change topics to our favorite topic. How is your dog? Oh, my dog is uh, – my dog, whose name is Brian, is doing very well. I recently moved from a very busy city apartment to a house with a yard. And as sort of uh, the cliche would suggest, <laughs> he very much enjoys having a yard to run around in. He recently managed to get loose for the first time. <gasps> oh, no. Um because the um, either I or possibly the guy who mows the lawn, I have a very like good dude who comes and mows my lawn because my house is a giant hill and mm. I would take my own foot off. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's good that he knows what he's doing. Uh, so one of us left the gate not quite shut. And so I came out one time to get the dog oh, and I Linda. saw the door, the gate standing open and I was like, oh my God. So, yeah. you know, it was in the morning. So I like run inside. I put shoes on. I go out and I'm like partway across the street and I can't see him. And I was starting to think like, should I get in the car and go look for him? Like, what's the right thing to do? And I'm just totally panicking. Um, And then I turned around and I saw him jumping up and down at the gate, which I had closed on my way out. So he was like, you close the door. Let me I can't come get, home. I can't get back in. <laughs> Why'd you close the door for, Mom? I was going to come back. So he's doing well. He's getting used to the Good. yard. Um, and I am now paranoid about making sure the gate is shut. Good, Good um, lesson. But he's doing great. He's uh, He loves being a I, – I hope he loves being a, an Instagram dog, you know. I mean, he is, and we so. will include his his info. In, yeah, in, our, in the show for notes. sure, for sure. Yeah, he's a he's a weird, fun, photogenic dog who you know still barks at certain things, barks well. barks at bikes always. And I I assume everyone has this question for you, but it's unavoidable, and we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Linda, what is making you happy these uh, days, especially? That, that is a great, that is a great, great question. I recently finished Sonali Dev's uh, book, Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors, which oh. is sort of a take on Pride and Prejudice, but pretty quickly kind of, you know, moves away from that. And it's, a, so it's this wonderful kind of inflected through a different kind of family and and hmm. people with different kind of cultural reference points and i i it's also just a super fun it's a it's a super fun well-written charming romance and uh, again pride prejudice and other flavors by Sonali Dev. and and have you been carrying anything either on your laptop or in your bag on on book tour that's kind of kept you company 
Well, as I told you <laughs> once earlier, this is like, it's not a setup question. This is the truth. On book tour, I had Maris's husband's book with me, uh, your husband, Josh, his book, uh, Nice Try. Yes. I actually read on, on book tour and it's wonderful and it made me very happy. Aww. And so uh, that's been great. I definitely have not had as many opportunities to to read as I would like to because when I have free time, I tend to sleep. Yes. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's – uh, it's good. It's good to be out there with a lot of good stuff. I keep up with, you know, some of my shows. I keep up with Big Little Lies and yes. things like that. Meryl Streep. Forever. Oh Forever. Yes. Yeah. The, the tissue stuffing scene with Laura Dern was really. You know, it's, it continues to be a show that is so weird and flawed, I think, on a larger level, yes. on a story level, and on a why are we all here level, but it also continues to be capable of these extraordinary individual scenes and moments, you know, whether it's Laura Dern just like flipping out and and stuffing tissues in her husband's mouth, <laughs> or even some of the kind of, you know, the the Reese Witherspoon in her wedding dress, yeah, trying to kind of get her husband to to sort of return to her. Those are still good moments. They're you know? they're gift ready. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting show for that reason to me. It's 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 lost in terms of um, you know it's lost in terms of direction. I feel like <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, and of course there were if you haven't read about the the mm. kind of stuff surrounding the the shuffling of directors and mistreatment of the woman that they brought in to be um, the Andrea Arnold. Yes. Who they brought in to be the director of the second season who kind of was undermined according to kind of her, I think, allies. And, and uh, it does not sound like a good story. No. So if you haven't read that, look it up because it's worth thinking about what that is doing to the structure of the show yes. and its ability to hang together um, visually and thematically. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Maris. And it's always a delight to see you in any context, including this one. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.